Heavenly Father, literally the greatest need of the hour for your people is for us to hear your voice. It's not for us to hear a man. It's not for us to hear ideas or thoughts about how we think things should be. But it is to hear the voice of the living God. Breathe the reality of who he is and what he's done for us on the cross of Christ into our souls. And so I'm pleading with you right now that you would do that. All the weakness, all the barriers, everything that is broken about how we listen, how we hear, how I even would proclaim your word, Father God, I pray that you'd mitigate those great difficulties and that you would give us the grace of hearing your voice in the scriptures today, Father. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, trusting in your Son, that you will make it so. Amen. So if you've been with us uh, for the last few weeks, we've been in John 3, and we've been exploring this conversation between uh, Jesus and uh, Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee. And uh, Nicodemus and Jesus have been talking about the reality of entering the kingdom of God through something we've called the new birth, being born again. And if you recall, Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus, he is convinced that Jesus is a teacher from God. He knows that Jesus is special because Jesus is doing all these signs and miracles. But you may also recall, prior to us being introduced to Nicodemus in John 2.24, John, the author, tells us that Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to everyone who claimed to believe in him, claimed to receive him, or who even expressed a kind of faith that saw him as a means to another end. Jesus is not interested in merely intellectual assent to facts about who he is or about what he's able to do in the world. He's not interested in that. Jesus is after, and we see this in the conversation with Nicodemus, a radical change of the heart of a human being. That is what he's after. He's after the kind of change that is only possible by divine, gracious, uh, a divine and gracious work of God um, on the heart of a person, something we call the new birth. And uh, Jesus describes it as being born of the Spirit in John 3. That's the miracle Jesus is after. All these other signs are meant to to funnel to that reality where God transforms the heart of a sinner into someone who trusts him, who loves him, who adores him, who seeks after his will, a kind of love for God that is impossible without this event of being born again. And Nicodemus, as we've seen throughout this conversation, is having a hard time swallowing what he is hearing. He is lost. Uh, when it comes to what Jesus is talking about, when it, when it comes to the new birth. Jesus told him straight up, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus doesn't understand this. He doesn't understand really fundamentally what it is. He doesn't understand how pervasive and how comprehensive the grip of sin is on the human heart. He doesn't. He doesn't know even the power of sin in his own life. It can't be merely amended or fixed or adjusted or tweaked. It must be completely ripped out and rebuilt by the hands of God. That's what the new birth is. That's what being born again is. 2 Corinthians 5 calls it the new creation. There's a reason why Paul calls it the new creation in that text. It is a brand new reality. 
And so we come to uh, verse 9 where Nicodemus questions Jesus. He says, how can these things be? He asks him plainly, like, how is this possible? And Jesus responds in verse 10. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them. Turn with me to John 3, verse 10 is where we're going to start. And this isn't the focus of our time today, but I want to go through this and recap a little bit where we've been. So Jesus responds to Nicodemus's question, how can these things be with verse 10? Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, this is where we ended last week. And so let's just, by way of recap, let's go through some of what we saw. This is a rebuke to Nicodemus. It's really clear. Jesus is being a little bit harsh here. He's been talking about being born again, and it isn't a new concept. It isn't a, a novel idea. It is something Nicodemus should know. The reality of the new birth is riddled throughout the Old Testament scriptures in different ways, different pictures, different wording, but it's there. The very scriptures that Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, has staked his life on. And so he should know this. And, and therefore, Jesus asked him, listen, are, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Like I said, this seems harsh, but Jesus, this is what real love looks like. Real love looks like this. He is exposing Nicodemus's blindness because he desires that Nicodemus see. He wants Nicodemus to see him for who he is and receive him as he is. This is the only pathway to Nicodemus having the sight that he needs. And so Jesus tells him next that when Jesus or anybody who's speaking the message, the gospel, when they speak, they are speaking of what they know, what they've experienced firsthand. They're bearing witness to what they've seen. This isn't secondhand information. This isn't something that Jesus just heard from someone, and now he's conveying this idea to somebody else. This all comes from God. This gospel comes from God. And even the earthly concept of being born again, uh, which happens on earth in our own lives, Nicodemus can't believe that truth. And if he can't go there with Jesus, how can Jesus take him further into deeper, greater realities, into the heavenly reality of who he really is and what he's ultimately come to do on earth. Nicodemus is still struggling with his understanding of just the depravity and the futility that man is in as a slave to sin. How can he even move up to to looking at the gospel, looking at these greater realities of heavenly things? And so Nicodemus's struggle is what incites Jesus to, to say what he says next, that no one has ascended into heaven ever. Humankind is far too broken. Not a single man can make their own way into heaven, not through willpower, not through grit, not through obedience, not even through a, 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 an agreement with bare facts that looks like faith but really isn't. No one can ascend into heaven. That's how futile man is in their sin. But Jesus provides an exception here. He says, except the one who descended the Son of Man. And that's what we looked at last Sunday. This profound descending of the Son of Man, which 
this Son of Man title is a title given to the Messiah, given to the Christ, given to the ruler of the world who is a human, um, of the universe, really. The, the one who is in the likeness of man, but actually descended from heaven. He's not just a man. He is the eternal Son of God. He has been with the Father from all eternity in the form of God. He's the eternal word that John talked about in John 1.1, 1, 1, who was with God and was enigmatically God for immeasurable ages. And he is the only one who can ascend to the Father because he came from the Father. <clears throat> and that brings us to verse 14 uh, and 15, which is what we're going to focus on today. So Jesus here has been showing Nicodemus now heavenly things. He's taking him past the new birth into the roots of where the new birth comes from. We saw last week in verse 13 that the Son of Man had to descend. This week, we're looking in verse 14. He's going to go even further. He's going to go even deeper. He is not done with Nicodemus. Praise God, he's not done with us. He's going to go further and, and higher into the, the depths of the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he's going to use a story from the Old Testament. So right after he says the Son of Man descended from heaven, Jesus in verse 14 and 15 says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's the gospel from the Old Testament. That is the gospel. And, and many of you may have heard that and been like, I kind of remember that story from Sunday school. That sounds familiar. Whether you remember it or not, we're going to look at it. It's in Numbers 21. So if you could turn there for me. And it starts with verse 4. It's only six verses long. Uh, but it's one of those stories that's so remarkable, <clears throat> so strange that we tend to remember these stories. Um, and, and Nicodemus would remember as well. In fact, he would know this story very well. He probably has taught this story on many occasions to people. And so now Jesus is going to be teaching him what the story actually means, no matter what he thought about it before. Jesus is saying, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, this exact thing, whatever that means, must be done to the Son of Man, the one who had descended from heaven, so that whoever believes in him, the Son of Man, might have eternal life. And this lifting up does not take rocket science to figure this out, is referring to the cross. Every lifting up in the book of John refers to the cross of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus being lifted into the air on a wooden beam that he has been nailed to like a common criminal. And Jesus is saying, this must happen. This has to happen. And the word here, must, in the Greek, it's, it's the word die in the Greek. And, and it means that it is necessary and essential. It must happen. There's simply no other way to accomplish the ends without this necessity happening. It, it is a word that speaks of, of kind of an unavoidable urgency to this being accomplished. And so to understand this, let's go. Numbers 21, verse 4. Jesus is taking him back to the Israelites, uh, who ha after having been freed from slavery by the hand of God, God had miraculously rescued them from, from Egypt. Uh, Israel's going through the wilderness right now. 
Um, and God has, since the point of his rescue, provided them with safety, and he's provided them with uh, sustenance, food, uh, in the form of manna, this bread-like substance that basically rained from heaven, came up like dew, and it has been sustaining them in the wilderness. Verse 4 tells us, From Mount Hor, they, the people of Israel, set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses, Moses made a, a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So again, Jesus is saying, <laughs> what we just read must happen to the Son of Man. That's Jesus' whole point. The, the reality we just read from Numbers 21 must happen. This is not one of many options he could take, not one of many paths he could take. This is necessary. The Son of Man must be lifted up. And the reason why is connected to this story, where the Israelites are expressing discontentment with Moses and with God. Uh, uh, they're asking him, like, why did you bring us out of Egypt just to die? Why are, are we going to die in this wilderness? There's no food. There's no water, at least not like what we had in Egypt. Um, and then they, they're being fed by God with this manna, um, but that's not what they want. They don't want manna. Um, they, they, they want something else. God's providing them with bread from heaven, but they call this bread worthless food. They are not pleased. Now, before we get to their response... We really need to understand what's going on here. I think it's easy for I think it's easy for me to look back at this, at the Israelites and say, "Man, why are you so foolish? Why are you complaining about this? God has just miraculously rescued you from Egypt. He's bringing you through the Promised Land. You're not a slave anymore. You're going to a, a land flowing with milk and honey, and you do this." Like, what's wrong with you? I, I think we might be tempted to think that this is an extraordinary indication of ungratefulness. Like, this is an extraordinary wickedness to respond to God and Moses like this. But I would argue that their ingratitude here and their wickedness here is not extraordinary at all. I would argue that it is par for the course when it comes to humanity from Adam all the way through to us today. This ingratitude dominates, toward God, dominates the heart of mankind. We do not regard God or his grace with the respect 
with the honor, with the value that it rightly deserves. Even redeemed Christians like us, who have been miraculously rescued like the Israelites, except our rescue is from sin and death. I mean, think about our lives for a moment. Just think about your life in a given day. Every breath, every thought, the capacity to think, to see, to reason, to speak, to love, to feel joy, all of those things, from the food that we eat to the friends that we have, from from intimacy with your spouse to the laughter of a baby, all of that is gift from the hands of God. It's undeserved, unearned, unwarranted, unmerited favor. It's grace is what it is. We have never done anything. You and I have never done anything to warrant one millisecond of those gifts from God, no less a lifetime of those gifts. But how often do you and I go hours into a day without even considering the graciousness that God must have towards us? and expressing sincere gratitude to him for five minutes. I mean, here's the deal. He deserves more than five minutes. I mean, God does not exist for us. We exist for him. Anything we get from him is a gift. And he deserves, in response to that gift, to be loved, to be honored, to be praised, to be adored for who he is and how loving he is. And yet, how often do we so easily downshift into discontentment when things don't go the way we want them to or when things aren't like what they should be? This pandemic, for me personally, I'm just going to describe my own personal interaction. If you feel any kinship to this, join me in reflection on this. This pandemic for me has taught me, if it's taught me anything, it's taught me that my sinful heart is saturated with discontentment. I think far too highly of what I deserve and my rights than I ought to think. I act like I'm owed, for example, not having to wear a mask. I feel that way sometimes. I act like I'm owed not being able to hang out or being able to hug people like we used to or being able to handshake or even talk face to face. I act like that's my right. I act like I Oh, I'm owed from God things being normal and not jacked up like they are right now. But God doesn't owe us that. God doesn't owe us anything. Everything that we had before was actually grace. It was God's loving, tender grace. And so one of the many things that God's doing in the pandemic for me personally is he is teaching me humility and he is teaching me gratitude. I should appreciate the things I don't deserve that I don't have anymore. Just like in the wilderness for the Israelites, this pandemic exposes selfishness. It exposes the, 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 the self-focus of our hearts deep down inside of us that would normally be concealed because we're coddled by having all of our felt needs met. And that's exposed here. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that We should not pray for this pandemic to end. We should absolutely pray for this pandemic to end. And I'm not saying we should blindly believe everything the news tells us or blindly believe everything 
The government says, I'm not saying any of that. I am saying that this should work as a teaching function under the sovereign hand of the living God. Um, we should pray for this blight to be brought out of this world and end for us and for the church and for the, the globe. But while we are in the middle of this pandemic, we need to reflect on the fact that we're no different in substance from the people of Israel in the middle of the wilderness. Ultimately, this is a joy issue. Where is our joy? Where do we focus our gladness on? Where, where do the roots of our happiness go down to? Do they go into God, the reality of who he is? Or do they go into not having to wear a mask in Starbucks? Do they go into God, how glorious he is, or in things getting back the way that they were? That's the question that I'm asking myself. And I'm trying to humble myself under God's sovereignty as we go through the rest of whatever this season's gonna look like. And, and so God's response here to the people of Israel, to whom he has shown extraordinary mercy, is important for us to hear. Because if we're like Israel, we need to hear what his response was in this moment where they are vocalizing their ingratitude. He's, they're speaking against him, against his provision, calling what he's given them worthless, effectively saying that it would be better for them to be slaves in Egypt than to deal with the garbage that he's trying to make them eat every day. And so God looks at that response and he responds to it with justice. He responds to it with fiery serpents, which are these deadly snakes. Apparently the venom may have been like a burning, fiery, of, of some sort of fiery nature. We don't know exactly why they're called fiery serpents, but they are explicitly designed by God to kill these people. That's what they're designed for. Verse six tells us that many of the people of Israel died. That's not an accident. God designed them for that purpose. This is punitive justice. This isn't harsh. This isn't cruel. This is actually, if we could see things objectively from God's view, right and appropriate. It is the right and appropriate response of an infinitely holy God to what is effectively an insidious and horrific evil of treating God less valuable than he really is. Something that all of us are guilty of. Their belittling of God, as it is spoken of from their mouths and vocalized, comes from the same source as every human's apathy toward God, as every human's indifference towards God. It's the same garden that all of those things come up in. A God who has given them everything, they treat as though he is the least valuable thing in their life. And God responds here with wrath. It's not capricious. It's not selfish like human anger. We can't, we're not good enough to be angry. Only God is good enough to be angry. This is a holy, just God who is responding with wrath by sending serpents to kill people because they deserve to die. They deserve this. And then verse seven tells us the people as others are dying around them, come to Moses and they plead with him, pray to God. They see that they've sinned. They see that they've done wrong and committed a horrific injustice to God. And they ask for the serpents to go. They beg for mercy here. 
not because the punishment is unjust. They, they admit we have sinned. They know it's just. And so they ask Moses, who they sinned against as well, to pray to God for mercy, and he does. But God does not take the serpents away. The text doesn't say that he does. What the text says here in verse 8 is that the serpents actually remain with them. Wrath cannot so easily be taken away. It would actually be unjust for God to pull the serpents back. It would be him dishonoring his own glory and his own worth, which they have belittled. So what does God do? Well, he tells Moses to make a bronze serpent, to raise it up on a pole before the people. And all they have to do, all they have to do is to look. Look at the serpent and you will live. It's called grace. Think about it. No matter how close to someone is to death in this moment, no matter how much poison is pumping through their veins, how feverish they are, no matter how evil and wicked they have been toward God, all they have to do is look. They look and they live. The serpents are still there. The serpents are still biting people. But now there's this pole, there's this bronze serpent that has been lifted up, just like the ones that are biting them. And if you look at that serpent, you're saved. If you look at the serpent, you are saved. Now, <laughs> let's go back to John 3. Why, Jesus, do you bring up this story? Why bring up this event to depict the cross? Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is saying the Son of Man must be lifted up like this serpent. He must be pinned to a Roman instrument of torture, humiliation, and ultimately death, the cross, and he must be lifted up. And whoever believes in him will have eternal life. They will look to him and they will live. That's the only way into the kingdom of God. That is the only way into the kingdom of God. This must happen. The very first breath of being born again, which is what this whole chapter has been focused on so far. The very first breath is the thing that Jesus is calling believing in him. It's faith, sincere, saving faith, a receiving of Jesus for who he is and what he's done on the cross. It is embracing him as the treasure that he is. And this faith, this impulse to trust God, this impulse to receive Jesus and love him can only happen to a sinner if God first infiltrates their hearts and makes them new which is why Jesus is spending so much time explaining the new birth before he even gets to the gospel. This is critical. But the story that Jesus tells here does raise a huge question. Why compare himself to a brazen serpent? Why do that? Out of, out of all the different examples in the Old Testament, all the different prophecies that he could have pointed at to say, that's the cross. Why go here to Moses, to the serpent? in the book of Numbers. Here's the reason why. The justice of these fiery serpents displays the unequaled holiness of God. It communicates the worth and value of God. God cannot tolerate evil, or else he would be evil to do that. The shocking thing about this story, and this is <laughs> amazing, the shocking thing about this story 
isn't that God sent serpents to kill people. That's not shocking at all. They deserved what they had, what they got. The shocking thing is that he waited mercifully and patiently till Numbers 21 to do it. He waited patiently with them. Not like they treated him. He was patient with them before he set aside his mercy for a moment and allowed the wildfire of his justice to work its way into their camp. And so the lifting up of the serpent is a picture of God's righteousness. Sin is not a small thing to God. It is not a light, trivial thing. It may be that way to us, but he cannot forget and forgive it on a whim. Sin against God is infinitely costly because God is infinitely worthy. And this is exactly what the cross of Christ is. This is exactly what the cross of Christ is. It is a picture of our sin being dealt with by a holy God on the cross. Romans 3 tells us this. And listen carefully to these words. Paul's going to explain to us what Jesus is saying in these two verses. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Why, Paul? Why, why did God do that? He's going to tell us. This, the cross, was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, God had passed over, mercifully, former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that God might be just and enigmatically also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That right there is why the cross exists. That's why it exists. God in the cross is showing his righteousness. He is displaying, listen, I am a just God. I am a just God. I do not simply sweep mankind's rebellion and treason under the rug like it is nothing. I am far too righteous for that. And so I can't just forgive. Some fictional gods that we create in our own minds, that culture creates, that humans have created over history, can just forgive on a whim. A real and holy God could never do that. Because a real and holy God is infinitely worthy. A worthless God can do that, for sure. But not a God who possesses actual glory, real glory, real worth. If God is really worthy, then that worth needs to be vindicated if it's been belittled. And God passing over our sins, just like Paul says here, him not looking at our sins, not regarding our sins as something that needs to be met with justice, since the very beginning of human history has created a huge problem because it would suppose here, how can God be righteous if he thinks mankind's dishonoring of him disregarding of him is such a small thing that he can just forgive it. How can he be a good God? I mean, really, truly good if the greatest value in the universe himself can be ignored all day long with no response. And the only solution to this massive problem, the only solution to this question 
is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the lifting up of the Son of Man, just like the serpent in the wilderness. It is a picture of God's righteousness, his holiness. Paul says God put his son forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation, what does that mean? It's a very big word. Propitiation is a substitute. It is a a, a wrath bearer. God put Jesus forward to absorb the justice due us. The cross is a picture of God's justice, just like the serpent was a picture of what he was doing in the, the, the camp of the Israelites at that time. On the cross, God is satisfying every ounce of evil he has endured by how humanity has treated him from the beginning of history through to the end. And by doing this, God vindicates his own righteousness. He proves himself to be just. He is just. And he is also the justifier of everyone who believes in his son, who holds fast to his son as a sufficient propitiation for their sins, as a sacrifice. He is just in that our rebellion doesn't go unpunished. It is punished. But he's also the justifier in that he is made by his grace a way for us to be with him forever. Through faith in Christ, by looking at the cross, God's holy justice put on display for the world to see, just like the serpent in the wilderness, by looking to that and receiving it in faith, we are saved. That's the answer to Nicodemus's question. How can these things be? It's it's the right question. I don't think Nicodemus had in mind what Jesus was going to say, but it is the right question to ask. How is it that an infinitely holy and righteous God can forgive man's sin without dishonoring his own worth? How can he just let bygones be bygones without paying for it? And the answer is he can't. He can't. He's too worthy. Someone must pay for that dishonoring. And so God in his plan for salvation sends his son to descend into this earth in order to be the very means of his vindication and our forgiveness at the same exact time. If you want to know how glorious and worthy God is, If you want to know how awesome he is, look at the cross. In order for our sins against him to be dealt with justly, it required, in fact, it demanded the Son of Man needed to be lifted up. God's own blood needed to be shed on that tree. The Son of Man must be lifted up, Jesus said. This is the only way for us to have access to the kingdom of God. It's the only way for you and I to have anything like eternal life. This had to happen. Without this, there is no new birth. There's no regeneration. There's no being born again. There is no eternal life. So as we close here, I want to first say this. I'm not naive enough to believe that every single person who hears my voice right now in Risen Hope, outside Risen Hope, no matter where you are, is a Christian, actually does believe in Jesus Christ. I'm not naive enough to believe that. And so what I want to do is I want to invite you right now, wherever you are, if you're looking at the cross right now, out of all we've seen this morning, and you see it as beautiful, and you see it as glorious, and you want to be reconciled to God, I would invite you, trust in Christ. Believe in him. Receive the cross. Let him be the treasure that he really is. 
I want you to believe. I want you to know that this is for you if you receive it. And for those who do believe, right now we're going to celebrate communion during this next song, the Lord's Supper, which is a picture of the cross. It's a reminder of what God did through his son here for our forgiveness and for the upholding of his glory and his righteousness. And I want you to know, this is so critical for us to understand. This is why John 3 is in the Bible. I want you to know that if you trust him right now, if you love Jesus, if you've received him, God did that. God has caused you, 1 Peter 1, to be born again to a living hope. We did not, you and I did not create those affections, manufacture those affections in our hearts. That love was graciously put into our hearts by the Spirit of God. And he could only do that because of the cross of Jesus Christ. He could only do that because his son died. It came through this magnificent display of his righteousness and his justice and his love for us, paying for every sin that you and I will ever commit, every single sin punished on that tree so that you and I could be with him forever. This is what Jesus means when he says, the son of man must be lifted up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the, the, the glory and the realities that we've been saturating our hearts with this morning from your scriptures are too great, too far beyond us. They are indeed heavenly things. And as 1 Corinthians tells us, the natural man can't receive these things. We must be given the Spirit of God to understand these great and glorious realities. I mean, really understand them. And so I'm, I'm asking, I'm pleading right now, Father God, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on each individual, each individual who's hearing this right now. Grant that we would hear and know and see the beauty and the glory of the new birth, the beauty and the glory of the vindication of God's worth. We have a God who is worthy to be praised. He's not fiction. He's not make-believe. He is so real. We have a Christ, a Savior, one second in his presence, and we will know that everything we've experienced in this life was a joke compared to that. Help us to have some kind of feeling and taste of that now. Please grant us that. In the name of Christ Jesus, I ask these things, confident that God can produce them in us. In the name of Jesus, amen.